It never ceases to amaze me that at the foot of a bloody cross where Jesus dies is where life is found. It's where life is found. Uh, just to share with you uh, where we are going uh, in the next couple of weeks before we uh, dive into our text today, uh, we are wrapping up this high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, which wraps up what we've called the private ministry of Jesus, where it's just Jesus as in disciples. 18 and 19 start the passion ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion, the arrest, the trial, the beating. Uh, my challenge to you this week is for you to read John 18 and 19. Uh, we will not look at that together as far as a sermon goes because I want to go to John chapter 20 next week with the resurrection. Um, so I do challenge you and encourage you this week. Um, the events of Holy Week have uh, played out and we are now in these last few days in John 18 and 19. So let me encourage you just to read through that uh, and study that uh, this week. But today we will be in John 17. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 9 as we go. But let me pray for us as we open God's word. Uh, Father, we come to you at this time, opening your word, praying and knowing that it's a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet. Father, we pray and we ask that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen. Uh, a favorite movie of mine, it's about football, it's called Remember the Titans. Anybody seen Remember the Titans? It's an older movie. Uh, it, it's a good movie on a lot of levels, but the beginning of the movie has this uh, school that's being segregated, or excuse me, integrated. They were segregated, now they're being integrated, and it's causing a lot of challenges for the school and for the community so the new African-American head coach takes over. He takes his African-American athletes and his white athletes, and he takes them away to camp. Uh, the goal of that camp is to learn how to play football, of course, but he wants to unify his team. He is taking them away from the external pressures, away from the community, away from the, the world that they were living in, and it's just them. They are together, and they struggle to unify. They struggle to come together. But at the end of the camp, they are one unit. They are one team. And, and the whole thing is the coach says very clearly, if you want to accomplish your goals, if you want to win, if you want to be successful, you have to be one. You have to be together. You cannot let the external pressures of the world divide you. And so they come together. They unify, they get to know each other, and they leave camp stronger than they were when they came in. But here's the problem with camp. They had to leave and go back to the real world. And when they went back to the real world, they faced real pressures, real challenges. The hate they left was still there, and it began to fracture the team just a little bit. And so they had to fight, and the coach had to work with them. And every day, every moment, they fight to stay together. And ultimately, the movie ends with them winning a state championship because they stayed together and accomplished their goals. Now, that's just a movie. 
But that plays out in real life all the time. I have seen this play out uh, in my life and in my experience often with students who go to camp. Every summer for 15 to 20 years, I have taken 6th graders and 12th graders to a camp. And we go through the gates of camp and we leave the world behind. We leave the busyness behind. We leave the practices behind. And you are saturated with Jesus for a week. And I have seen groups come together. I have seen 12th graders become really good friends with 6th graders. I mean, 12th graders. I mean, you you understand where I'm coming from. They're 6th graders, right? I have seen groups unified at camp. I have seen decisions made. I have seen commitments made. Uh, I've seen rival high schools come together and get along at camp. I've seen students commit to to daily quiet times and daily devotions, and, and they walk the aisles, they lift their hands, and they are on fire for Jesus, and they are together as a group at camp. All too often, when you leave camp, you come back to the real world. Practices begin, work begins, school begins, That group of friends that you used to hang out with, you're going to go back to hang out with them. And that unity, that strongness and those commitments of camp don't last. But it's not just students. Adults, we do the same thing. We'll go to conferences. We'll go to marriage conferences, revitalization conferences, worship conferences, women's conferences, men's conferences. And you'll come together at the conference and you'll make commitments at the conference. Because you're away from the world, you're away from the pressures, you're, you're insulated, right? And then you leave the conference and you begin to look more like the world than being transformed by the word. It doesn't take long for us to enter back into the world and to become conformed to the world. It's human nature, it happens. It's a struggle that we all face. It's a struggle that your pastor faces. Do you know the hardest thing for me in seminary was spending 24 hours on campus, some days a weekend, just insulated in the life of learning about Jesus and then coming home to my to-do list, right? You know, the the to-do list. You know, you sit in those chapels and uh, the hybrid weekends are very spiritual, and, and you just, you're just worshiping and soaking it in, and you're reading scriptures with like-minded brothers and sisters, and, and then you get home, and you're like, oh, I got a paper to write that's due Tuesday. Commitments and unity wane quickly when we begin to conform to the world instead of conforming to the world. The idea is this, is the Christian life is hard. It's just hard. Human nature says we want to fit in, we want to be accepted, we want to go back to our old life. That's just human nature. We have to fight against it. We have to fight against it. The disciples for three and a half years have been somewhat insulated with Jesus. It's been like a three-year camp with Jesus. Now, they've experienced hostility. They've experienced those things. But they've been insulated by the circle that they've kept. It's been all the disciples all the time with Jesus. And Jesus understands that I'm leaving. He says, I'm out of here. And so he's been instructing them throughout this uh, farewell discourse and even in this prayer as he prays for them. 
he's been instructing them and encouraging them to live life without Jesus, without him in the world. And as we look at these uh, last words of this prayer, that is his focus. So starting in verse 9, here's what he prays. He says, I pray for them. Now you have to look back if you want to know who the them is. It's all those, it's those who have believed. By the way, verse 20 says it's all of us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed, had you on his prayer list 2,000 years ago. Okay, he's praying for the disciples. He's praying for all his disciples. But he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus loves the world. He'll be on the cross. Forgive them for that. They know not what they do. But this is specific to the disciples and specific to the church. So I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name or keep them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except for the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas. But the reason for that is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by truth. In verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through your word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. 2,000 years ago, Maybe 2,500 years ago. 2,000 plus. That's what Jesus prayed. Walking that path to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
where he will be arrested, where he will be put on trial, beaten, and then put on a cross the next day. That's what he prayed for. He prayed ultimately that God would be glorified as we saw last week, but he prays for the people. He prays for believers. And the first thing that you just need to see before we really dive into the two main requests is that Christians, we are in the world to proclaim Christ to the world. We are in the world to proclaim Christ to the world. We're not of the world, but Christians are in the world to proclaim Christ to the world. He says it over and over again. Verse 11, they are not in the world. Verse 14, they are not of the, excuse me, verse 11, they are in the world. Verse 14, they are not of the world. Verse 15, don't take them out of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world. And then verse 18, I have also sent them into the world. We are people who have to live in this world. Uh, We're not monks who uh, isolate ourselves. The the monastic idea, the monk idea was that they don't want to be corrupted by any part of the world. So they build these monk houses, temples, castles, and they just go there and live completely isolated from the rest of the world. Nobody in, nobody out, unless you're a monk. That's not biblical. And one of my favorite you know, reformers, Martin Luther, started out as a monk, but that's okay. That's not biblical. We are to live in this world. Not of it, but we are to live in the world. We are not to isolate ourselves in our buildings. We are not to just isolate ourselves at our conferences or our camps. We have to live in the world. But at the same time, we cannot conform to the world. Paul makes it clear in Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God... I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect to the will of God. We have to be in the world. We are sent into the world to proclaim Jesus to the world, but we cannot conform to the world. Here's what this means. We can't hide ourselves in our buildings. We can't, uh, we can't, we, we, we have to go out and engage this world with grace and truth. We have to teach our kids how to do it. We have to teach our kids how to engage the world with the truth of Jesus Christ without conforming to the nonsense of the world, with the, the lies of the world. Listen, I got two kids. I would love to just shelter them and keep them away from everything. But I can't do it. I can't do it. I have to teach them. And when we're out and about and we see something, and there's all kinds of things you see when you're in the world. It's opportunities to teach and explain and say, listen, that's a sin. That's wrong. Here's how we lovingly engage in conversations. Here's how we live in the world without conforming to the world. These disciples have been insulated, and now Jesus is gone. He does not want them to build monk temples. He wants them to live in the world. He wants them to tell people in the world about Jesus without conforming to the standards of the world. And so because that is happening, here's what he prays. He prays for two things. The first is this. He prays for protection. Jesus prays for these disciples and for us to be protected. Uh, The CSB translated protected. Your translation may say keep. It's really a prayer for perseverance. Uh, We hear that word protection and we're like, oh, he's praying that they be protected from 
sickness. Maybe, but not really. Uh, He's praying that they be protected from all the persecution that's coming. Maybe, but not really. Because, I mean, we know that he's already told them persecution is coming. They're going to be hated. This is a prayer for perseverance. And it's really spiritual perseverance. It's the idea of he wants them to continue doing what he has already established. It's basically this. Guys, I'm pray- God, I'm praying that my disciples and the disciples 2,000 years from now stay the course of their faith. That they stay the course. When the going gets tough, stay the course. When the world comes down against them, that they'll stay the course. When the intellectuals challenge their beliefs and their truth and, and say that, oh, I, this truth is my truth, and so it's the truth, that they will stay the course and stay committed to the real truth of God's word, the only truth. When disputes in the church happen, that they will stay the course. I mean, you go into the book of Acts and the church is being birthed and formed and there's arguments. Can you believe that? That's how I know they're Baptist, right? There's arguments, all all denominations. That was just a joke. But they're working through it. And he says, with these internal arguments and these doctrinal discussions, help them to stay the course. Help them not to lose sight of their mission. Help them not to lose sight of their fellowship. Help them not to lose sight that I love them and I brought them together. Help them to stay the course, even through healthy discussions and healthy disagreements. And he says, do this by your name. Preserve them by the power of your name. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots or some have pride in chariots. Some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord. We take pride in the name of the Lord. We've studied Hosea in my Sunday school class. And what we've seen is that the Israelites in that northern kingdom, they trusted a nation of Assyria to protect them. They trusted in the Assyrian army to heal them and make sure that they were absolutely going to be safe. And what Hosea chapter 14 we learned about this morning says the only safety, the only healing, the only restoration is in in the Lord. For us, it's Jesus Christ. By the power, we are unified, we are protected, we are preserved by the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. When we are facing persecution, when we are facing Uh, the potential for the division. When we are facing the hardships of life, we run to the strong tower of the Lord. Me and TJ love playing Minecraft. It's it's like our thing. I mean, we we love it. He has built the tallest Minecraft tower and there, there would be no penetrating his fortress. That's the Lord. There's no penetrating the fortress of the Lord. So we are protected and preserved by God's power. But listen, what's the purpose? Why does he pray for this? Unity. Unity is all through this whole section. It's actually probably the main point of the prayer. Preserve them for the sake of unity so that they may be one. The theme dominates verses 20 through 26. Uh, but notice that he looks at the disciples and he says, He doesn't pray that they would become united, that they would continue to be united. Their unity was established by Jesus. He took 12 guys from all different walks of life. They were fishermen, rich, poor, 
all different people from different communities, different towns, different villages, different socioeconomic statuses, and he united them under his name, under his power. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you received with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Listen, we are not unified by skin color. We are not unified by paycheck. We're not unified by the cars we drive or the houses we live in. We're not unified by the schools we attend, the music we like and listen to. We are unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, and then you get into the letters of Paul, you see this. Paul's missionary journeys. You see rich people in in a world where, in, in a time when poor people and rich people didn't associate with each other, where men and women didn't associate with each other. They were unified in the church under the name of Jesus. The only way the disciples will accomplish the greater works that Jesus has already talked about is through unity. And and listen, I have no doubt that if Jesus showed up in the world today, I think he would rebuke most of our churches for unnecessary and often petty divisions. I do. I I think he would show up. He's like, why are you fighting about this? There was a church in Texas decades ago, and I've probably told this story. The church in Texas uh, split. Uh, There was a fight, big fight, big church, big fight, split. Church was big enough that big property, the two warring factions went to court over who was going to get the property. You know, who wants the facilities? You know, the church, you know, so they went to court. Through the discovery process, through the lawsuit, they found out what caused the problem. Where did it all start? This is real, this is a true story. It's not a lie. I'm not making this isn't a preacher story. It's a true story in Texas. There's there's preacher stories out there, but this is true, okay? An older gentleman got a smaller piece of country ham than the child he sat next to at a church fellowship. And you're like, oh, you're making that up. That's a true story. And that led to other problems and other problems in the church split, but that was the heart of the problem. Was an old guy got mad. I'm sorry, old guys. I'm an old guy too. An older man got mad because he got a smaller piece of ham. And you laugh, and we laugh, and it's silly. I've seen churches divide for similar things. If Jesus were here today, I think he would cry out, Father, protect them or preserve them from their petty preferences that divide them. Protect them, uh, protect the church from those who strive to stir the pot and cause dissent. Every church has got them. Protect them from those people who want to cause trouble and divide. But ultimately, Father, protect them from the evil one. The evil one who is putting it in our hearts to dissent. The evil one who is causing us to question our faith. Protect them from the evil one who sows the seeds of hate and strife in our hearts. The evil one who makes us put our preferences above the unity of the church. Protect them 
from these things. Because they are to be one as we are one. Listen, the unity that we are supposed to have reflects the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we are one, as we are one, as we are one. Listen, you ever heard Jesus gossiping about the Father? You ever heard Jesus complaining about the Holy Spirit? You ever see Jesus walking around and like, well, my heavenly Father got a bigger piece of ham than me at the fellowship. No, they are completely 100% lockstep united. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is the unity that we are to reflect in our church and in our lives. Friends, listen, we need to avoid foolish controversies because our enemy, the devil, he is lurking and he is looking for the smallest crack from the fights over the color of the floor to the paint of the wall, so on and so forth, all the way down the list. One crack, and he will get in to try to destroy churches. This church, any church, any small group, any Sunday school class, our enemy is constantly stirring the pot, trying to cause division. Why? A divided church is an ineffective or an ineffective church. A divided church will not accomplish its goal. Just like that divided team could not win a state championship. We have to be unified. And so he prays for perseverance. He prays that we are protected by the power of God for the sake of unity. But then he ties all this together and he prays for sanctification. Uh, sanctification is a big church word. It basically means to become holy. It, uh, really, when you break it down, it means we are set apart to be holy. Uh, the idea, the New Testament idea of sanctification is set apart from something for something. We are set apart from the world, from the sins of the world, for the advancement of the gospel. And so we are sanctified by truth. By truth. Listen, sanctification is here. This is truth. If you want to be sanctified, uh, the, and just to, to, to make you aware, when you decide to follow Jesus, that's justified. When you say, I'm a child of God, I'm following Jesus, I'm surrendering my life, God says, okay, I got you. You are not guilty of your sins. You are saved in that moment from the penalty of sin. But that just begins a process of becoming holy. It begins a process of sanctification. These disciples are still babies in this process. So they're still working through this idea of being set apart, being holy. And the way we are sanctified is through the truth of God. And for you and I here today, it is in the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. It's truth. We read it, we study it, we interpret it, and we live it out in our life. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, as obedient children to God, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, to your former life. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he prays, help them to be Holy, what does this look like? It means that we define our faith based on the word of God and not the world. The world does not dictate to us what is true. The world does not dictate to us 
what is right and wrong. God's word does. It means that the God of this world, the evil one, will never defeat us, by the way. It may seem like he's winning, but we will not be defeated. It means that the truth is defined by God's word. It means that God transforms us and enables us through his spirit to stand strong and proclaim the gospel. It means that we are unified by one God through the work of Jesus to reach the nations. And I don't you're not going to be perfect overnight, but every day, be holy, be holy. Every day, strive to be set apart because we are set apart from something for something. Now it comes full circle. We're in the world and he sends us out into the world. We are set apart for missions. I've said it since we've been in this farewell discourse, and I'll say it again. We are disciples who make disciples. We are disciples who make disciples. They are disciples who are going to go make disciples. To do that, we have to be holy. We have to look different than the world. And for that to happen, we have to be preserved by the power of God for the sake of unity. This prayer that we've studied, verses 1 all the way to 26, from glorifying God to this, this is the vision that Jesus lays out for his church. It's all summed up in chapter 17. Glorify God, live in the world, but don't be of the world. Jesus wants us to be unified. One church, one mission. One church, one mission. Today as we reflect on that great love of God, what he has done for us this prayer he prays for us and reflecting that he is going to go to the cross which will enable us to be justified. He will defeat sin and death on the cross and through the resurrection. And then he will ascend to the Father and send us the Holy Spirit so we can be sanctified. As we reflect upon that and as we get ready for this time of invitation, it is a perfect day to celebrate the Lord's Supper. To remember that, hey, Jesus prayed for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus worked for us so that we could be holy if we trust him, if we follow him, if we surrender our life to him and to him alone. Uh, as our band comes up, this is my uh, challenge to you this morning. As we sing, I want you to respond as the Lord leads. Is there something on your heart that is causing division? strife, conflict, give it to the Lord. Here at this altar, at your seat, give it to the Lord. Pray for our church. Pray for the unity. Pray that the Lord would preserve us and keep us and unify us so that we could be on mission for him. But if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to him, if you've never said, I'm a sinner and I need to repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, do that today. Do that today because we will celebrate the Lord's Supper and that's the sacrifice he made so that you could have eternal life.